Welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is Liam West and I'm a junior doctor in the Oxford Deanery and I'm also a member of the BGSM editorial team. Today, my guest is Dr. Russell Hearn, who balances his time between working in general practice here in London and expedition and wilderness medicine. Dr. Hearn has a passion for medical education and teaches at King's College London Medical School. He directs and teaches on the expedition and wilderness medicine components at King's College London and UCL, and is also an advanced life support instructor. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hearn. Thank you. You work as a general practitioner, uh, and then you you get to go away on all of these exciting trips and and provide medical cover. Do you think this is the best route into it, or have you spoke to other colleagues that think they would advocate going through maybe A&E, or what are your opinions? There's uh, a lot of great overlap between sports medicine and wilderness medicine and just anything where you're practicing outside of a normal NHS or hospital-based setting for providing medical care to people. So there's lots of really great routes into it. You said, you know, I get to go away and do all sorts of exciting things. And sadly, you risk being eaten up and being far too busy with GP and teaching and various different things. So that's one of the challenges. Um, I think from my point of view, um, I really enjoy my work life and, and life in general. And part of that is the flexibility of working in general practice. So it's a good setting that allows me to have flexibility over my work and my life at a relatively young age. And it's a good route for anybody interested in having that sort of portfolio career. So I'm not held to a hospital rotor. Um, I don't have to be there nights and weekends most of the time. And I've managed to craft out a niche for myself. Um, I work in a very supportive practice <laughs> and I spend a couple of days a week doing medical education and Uh, I get to teach about topics I'm interested in, like wilderness medicine, expedition medicine, and have a great time. What would you say the essentials are to having a medical bag for these events? So there's a lot of what I teach to students about wilderness medicine is really about the planning. Mm -hmm. And the best uh, expedition of wilderness or sports medicine doctor actually will have very little to do on the day because they'll have planned so well to prevent any problems from happening. So if you've taught your group well and you've asked them to bring their own paracetamol, you're not going to be needing to dole that out. Um, If you've talked to them about the risks of the activities that they're going to undertake, they're hopefully going to approach them in a sensible way, which means nobody's going to fracture their femur. When things do go wrong, there's a few things that are particularly useful. Um, First of all, I'd say try and put things in your bag that have more than one use. So a good example is duct tape. Um, that's a classic that everyone will probably begin with because you can use it for all sorts of things uh, improvising bandages it's waterproof um, popping over blisters um, although there's a few better things for that Um, holding stuff together you can just wrap it around a walking pole um, throw it in your bag it's a versatile thing you can use it to fix your tent in the middle of the night when there's rain getting in Mm -hmm. so uh, something like that's useful Um, a few basic medications and obviously you have to be careful of what you're taking where um, but something for pain, something for sickness, which is a really debilitating symptom. So if people are feeling sick, they can't do much. And many things to treat the classic things you're going to come across, which would be diarrhea uh, mm-hmm. and vomiting. So diarrhea a a good favorite for me, or at least knowing what to mix together to get a diarrhea like substance. Mm-hmm. Some basic bandages, blister stuff, because they're, again, dead common. Um, And then I guess you're balancing what you're likely to come across 
So what are the common things? Blisters and, and diarrhea are going to be vomit, uh, and diarrhea and vomiting are going to be common. But on the other hand, the really serious stuff. So if you've got somebody in your group with a history of anaphylaxis, you're going to need that EpiPen if you need the EpiPen. And hopefully you won't. But when you do, there's not really another option for it. Do you have any stories where some of the equipment you may have took for something else, you've, you've managed to sort of turn it into a, maybe not a life-saving, but a very useful purpose? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure I've got a great answer for you, to be honest. Um, there's a few examples of times when I've, I've fallen out with people over not wanting to use things for things I don't think they should be used for. So in my my go-to medical kit, my little personal kit that I keep about me, I have a flashlight that I call my emergency flashlight or torch. Um, but I've picked up a bit of American on the way. So um, it's for emergencies and there's people always asking to borrow it because their flashlight's broken or the batteries have run out. And I've got this kind of mindset that, no, that's for emergencies. And and then, I, I mean, I've actually fallen out with people on trips because of that, because of my unwillingness to give them what they consider to be a backup flashlight that I consider to be an emergency flashlight. Um, there's plenty of things that have, like, really useful multiple purposes, Um People will take tampons and condoms, which have obvious intrinsic purposes, but actually can come into play for other things. So for bleeding, um, tampons can be quite useful for nosebleeds. Mm -hmm. Um, And then condoms you can use. Luckily, I've not had to resort to it myself, but for carrying water, um, for actually you can use it as sort of a a dry dressing, put it over a foot or over a leg. They're quite Mm -hmm. stretchy uh, to keep something dry if you wading through a river or sat in a canoe all day and have some some injury you need to keep from getting wet. Do you have any tips for, for more extreme illnesses, sort of maybe hypothermia, hyperthermia, maybe frostbites, or have you encountered hyponatremia that some of our readers may have read about? Uh, <clears throat> so I think the main thing is to try, again, I'm going to be boring and say the best thing to do is to try and prevent them. So not put yourself in a position in which you're going to get frostbite mm-hmm. um, by planning what you're doing, um, avoiding cold and wet, which can uh, compound both problems. Um, and then, you know, managing whatever comes up, however it comes up. There's some useful guidelines out there. Um, one of the things that I particularly enjoy about working in a non-hospital setting and kind of outside the NHS is a lot of things haven't been completely guidelined. Uh, so you're actually thinking for yourself and coming up with your own management plans and doing what you think is best. So there's some great stuff. There's quite a lot of consensus documents from the Wilderness Medicine Society of America mm-hmm. about how to manage altitude sickness or hypothermia or frostbite. And a lot of that's evidence-based, and there's more and more evidence about these sort of pre-hospital and um, uh, wilderness type of injuries. But a lot of it's still down to, we think this works, and this has seemed to have worked in practice, and what you've been passed on by other people, um, and a lot of love for aloe vera gel for burns and things like that. No, that's good. Um, So you started to mention there a bit about, uh, I guess, the skills and training that you need to accrue. Are there any courses that you might suggest that listeners uh, at least look at uh, or or maybe go on? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that will be directly relevant to expedition medicine that are relevant to sports medicine, because a lot of it is the common injuries that you will see, sprains, Mm -hmm. strains, um, muscular soft tissue injuries, things like that, um, and basic trauma. 
there's a, a lot of good courses, a few in the UK run by some private companies mm -hmm. um, that are three or four days long that give you a comprehensive look and really pull in some content experts to teach you about that. Um, there's also a couple of annual conferences that happen in the UK. So there's the um, Worldwide Extreme Medicine Expo that happens either in the UK or sometimes in the US once a year which again is uh, full of content experts and you learn a lot of interesting stuff and meet some great people. As far as uh, sort of uh, formal qualifications go, there is the fellowship program for the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, which I went through myself. Um, it's run by the Wilderness Medicine Society of America, uh, who are based out of Utah. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a quite a comprehensive curriculum that you aim to cover through attendance at conferences, attendance at courses, online learning that they offer through their journal, um, and other activities that accrue points um, related to the experience and things that you've actually done in real life. And I think that's a really good sort of basic standard that would let somebody know that this person's put some effort into learning about wellness medicine and will be able to at least know what to do in most circumstances or have a good idea of where to find the answer. So I think that would be a good one. And then there's lots of courses that are related to those sort of, uh, to wellness expedition medicine. There's a lot of overlap with other things, as we said. Um, so there's uh, the Diploma in Medical Care of uh, Conflict and Catastrophes run by the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries mm -hmm. in London. Um, and that runs uh, basically over an academic year, um, uh, one day per month. Uh, and you attend that and there's an exam at the end and that's really focused on more of a humanitarian side of pre-hospital care and conflict and disaster so military medicines mm -hmm. type of things so that's another interesting one that people could look at the other thing just mm -hmm. before you move on just because I'm sure there's quite a few undergraduates listening um, physio medical students all, all those sort of people so if you're still studying and you haven't quite qualified yet so I run some SSEs or student-selected components at universities um, for wilderness and expedition medicine. And a lot of those are, are student-motivated. So students are interested in the topic. They want something set up. And what I'd say is if you're interested in doing something like that and you're at a university that doesn't have those things, try and find some faculty who will support you or do it as a self-designed uh, SSE or course and look for ways of making the curriculum what you actually want it to be so you should be learning about things you're interested in and if this is what you want uh, your future to be or you have a vocation towards then you can carve out that niche and most universities in fact I would say all medical schools they are interested in students who are enthusiastic about something and Certainly, I've responded to the students who've been interested in that at King's and at UCL and, and even supervised some students at Aberdeen and other places who've wanted to do SSCs related to it. So there's lots of opportunities for them to kind of make their own course rather than wait to be graduated to do something at a postgraduate level. What about insurance? Is that an issue? Because it's a sticky situation with some of the sports cover that we uh, get people to do. Yeah, so the sports cover in the UK, I guess, is one thing. Um, there's lots of ways in which, in fact, it's something all doctors ought to know about because at some point you're going to be on a plane and the, the light's going to go off. It's happened to me quite a few times. And there's a request for a doctor to help. And yeah, um, there's an interesting article in the BMJ from a few years ago with some thoughts and guidance on it. Um, we're lucky in that it doesn't, well, as far as my knowledge goes up till today, it hasn't been tested in court that a doctor who's rendered assistance 
um, from the UK has then been prosecuted for what they've done. So you're kind of covered in a sort of Good Samaritan situation. And certain airlines have insurance that covers you if you've tried in goodwill to help. And as long as you've not done anything drastically wrong and acted at your level of training within your bounds, mm-hmm. you won't, I don't think, fall a cropper. Um, what I would say is, so expeditions are one thing. Um, if you're taking on and accepting a formal role for a group's health mm-hmm. and you're going on a trip, you need to ensure several things. So one, are your defense union going to cover you if something did go wrong? Or is there a premium or extra insurance that you need to take? And you'd be silly to take on board something without checking with them first. Second of all, you, you kind of have a responsibility um, to make sure you, you're able to deliver the healthcare in that setting. So to to, to be able to do that, you need to have a good hand in the planning of the trip and the risk assessment that's taken place so that you aren't reassured by a company you go with or a travel group that everything's going to be fine and then you get there and find that there's actually no medical kit and there's no plan if something does go wrong because at the end of the day, you've, you've agreed to provide healthcare that you're then unable to, to provide. Certain countries are more challenging, so uh, working with Americans or in America can be quite tricky. The other problem is if you're a doctor in the UK, you may need, te- you may technically need a license to work in another country. Mm-hmm. So with the Olympics, uh, the Olympic uh, doctors who came from other countries were issued temporary licenses through the GMC to enable them to treat their own athletes while they're in London. Mm-hmm. And the same kind of thing applies. So even if I'm with a group of English tourists or English travelers in the US and I'm treating them medically. The American government may frown on that, and technically I might be acting outside the law by giving prescription drugs to people in that setting. So you need to be careful, I would say. And there's no yes or no or right or wrong answer, so it's down to your own ethics and judgment, and I'd say take advice. So we're just going to put you on the spot just before we finish. So outside of a general healthcare setting... Are there any interesting uh, scenarios where you find yourself uh, needing to provide medical care and, and had sort of interesting stories from it? I think the first one is probably where I had one of my most surreal experiences of my life. And I was, I was quite young at the time and I was involved in the healthcare for a group of children at a summer camp off the coast of Seattle. It's kind of on a remote island called Orcas Island, mm-hmm. a beautiful place, the most amazing sunsets I think I've ever seen. And each week a group of kids would arrive, um, hundreds of kids, so somewhere between two and 400 would arrive on the island and they'd have fun. Um, a lot of them came with medical problems. Um, many of them were medi- over-medicated, um, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, a lot of normal kids as well. Great fun. And we used to have a sick call a couple times a day. Um, sick call on the first day after dinner. One of the, the members of staff brought this child who had sort of vomited after dinner. And the child gave a story of having eaten quite a lot and being travel sick and had vomited once on the bus. Everything seemed fine. And flash forward to sort of 12 o'clock at lunchtime the next day, and there was about five or six kids vomiting. And by the next morning, it was about 50 kids. And it became quite obvious that there was an outbreak of something. Um, It was eventually thought to be sort of norovirus, which kind of made sense with how quickly it came on and the symptoms everybody had. Um, But I remember a particularly surreal moment at sort of two in the morning, 
and we'd set up a quarantine area and you, if you listened, and I would put my hand to my ear and listen, and I could hear the sound of retching constantly. And at about two in the morning, you know, it was quite warm, so there was people outside on mattresses in, in sort of a field. And we turned on some floodlights about two in the morning, and there was just this sea of writhing bodies and buckets and people staring into buckets and being miserable. And I caught... I'd caught it myself. I, you could barely avoid it if you were working with those kids. And you'd sort of, I'd go around myself vomiting about every 20 minutes, rubbing backs and dealing with a crying child and then making sure another one didn't have an actual sort of acute abdomen. And there was a, mm. a kid with diabetes whose blood sugars were everywhere. And you sort of just go around looking after one, moving to the next, listening to vomiting. And I had it myself. And it was just when those flashlights went on, it really felt like, a disaster zone. It wasn't. Um, it was all quite controlled and, you know, comparatively not a disaster compared to things that happen in the world. But at the time I wasn't feeling good myself and I felt, it felt really surreal to see that. <laughs> so I guess that's one. Okay. Um, um, yeah. And your take home message there would be, so did you prepare for that? My take home message is wash your hands, and if it's wet and it's not yours, don't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a good, good message or not, but yeah, wash your hands, and don't be afraid to say stop. And I think we should have maybe noticed it a little bit sooner mm. than we noticed it, and something should potentially have been done earlier. But in the end, no bad outcomes, so it, it all went well. So pay attention to early warning signs on these expeditions and things. Yeah, that's yeah, great. and always get everybody to wash your hands. Uh, the other thing that went through my mind um, was actually when I was sort of injured myself. Okay. So I was um, not with a large party, but a small group um, doing some canoeing up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I resisted the urge to say Canadia there. Um, up in Canada, and we were canoeing um, up in Algonquin uh, Park. You canoe, there's lots of interconnected lakes, and in order to get between different lakes, you hoik your canoe up, you put your backpack on your back, you put the canoe on your head, and you walk between the two different lakes. And everything was going fine, except at the time it was black fly season, so as well as walking, you're sort of being constantly nibbled, which is no fun. And walking along quite happily, and hear this sort of minor crunch. And from the middle of nowhere, I felt this really big weight on my shoulders, and then woke up on the floor with sort of a 10-foot tree limb next to me and the canoe on top of me and a couple of my friends sort of lifting the canoe off and what had happened is this dead dead tree limb had dropped straight on top of my head essentially put a little dint in a Kevlar canoe um, luckily a Kevlar canoe so it didn't go all the way through um, if I hadn't had the canoe on my head acting as a helmet I'm pretty sure I would have been seriously injured or dead um, I think I must have had a bit of a concussion because I managed to get to the next sort of campsite and lay down on a wooden bench and apparently fell asleep quite quickly and snored and stopped breathing on and off for a couple of hours. I don't remember really doing that. So I think I probably had a concussion and I was the only I was the only medic sort of there. And I think it, you're asking kind of take-home messages. I think my take-home message for that is to try and train your group that you're with Mm -hmm. and to have a plan for what happens when you're the one that is injured because there's no real reason, you know, as doctors, we're not bulletproof. There's no reason we're any less likely to get injured than anyone else. 
And I was lucky on that day that I had a canoe on my head, bizarrely, but it, it could easily have been, you know, a full concussion, um, a full head injury or neck injury or C-spine injury. And to get out from that circumstance when we were three days canoe paddle into the middle of nowhere with no telephone signal, no easy way of getting help, it would have been an attempt to sort of take somebody on a backboard by canoe across the Canadian wilderness, which really wouldn't have worked out well. So, yeah, prepare and, and look after your team around you because they're going to look after you. That's, that's, that's really nice. And maybe take some SCAT 3 assessment tools, which all our listeners will know about. <laughs> um, so superb. We'll, we'll wrap up there. So, I mean, there's some really good take-home messages and, and, and embodied really well in some stories there that the listeners um, that are aspiring to work in these extreme events uh, and expedition medicine can can take away and think about. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Liam. So this has been a BGSM podcast with Dr. Russell Hearn on expedition and extreme events medicine. Thank you for listening and have a physically active day.